please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 16. And it's been a couple of weeks at least since I pointed this out. Page 5 of your worship guide, there is an outline of the sermon and some reflection questions. And yeah, just use that as a resource, help, help you stay engaged with what God is revealing to us here. In this very brief passage we're going to be looking at this morning, we're just going to look at the first three verses of Judges chapter 16 this morning. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand now as I read this for us. And uh, I was reminded this past week when I was reading through the book of Nehemiah, uh, the eighth chapter. You can go read this for yourself later today. In Nehemiah chapter eight, uh, they have this all day reading of the scriptures event and they, they stand for the reading of God's word. And I was reminded that we stand out of reverence and to put our full attention on God's word. Uh, but that's not a stuffy uh, uptight thing we do. Uh, in fact, the, the emphasis in Nehemiah 8 is all about joy and gladness and reveling in the goodness of God. And in fact, the people get really somber when the word is read and Nehemiah and Ezra actually have to rebuke the, the, the congregation and say, y'all need to be happier. Y'all need to be more joyful and more glad. And they actually dismiss them to go have what we would kind of picture as revel in the goodness of God. So I hope we feel some of that as we receive God's word together this morning. Judges chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went down to Gaza. Sorry, Samson went to Gaza. And there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Y'all can have a seat. I invite you to pray with me. Uh, Father, we, we require the assistance of the Holy Spirit, the great supernatural helper that you have promised that is in fact here with us right now. We need his intervention and help in order to, to see and savor the Spirit in order that we might be deeply impacted by what you're saying, edified by what you're saying, and that our lives might be fruitful subsequently. Um, you know, after having read, read your word and studied it, we, we want you to cultivate a fruitful life, a, a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we pray that you would do that now in, in accordance with the Spirit's power and in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed that I have never mentioned this guy before, the guy I'm about to mention, because he's an obvious guy to mention. He's, he's a hometown hero. He's maybe the, the most famous celebrity here, here in Charlotte. Um, but this week it's unavoidable. I have to, I have to mention him because he is, he is sort of Samson reincarnate. And I think y'all know who I'm talking about, Ric Flair. I have to bring him up because he is Samson. He's like the same guy. Uh, Ric Flair and Samson, they're both philanderers. They're womanizers and they're, they're both fighters. They like to fight. Uh, and so we saw last week at the end of chapter 15, like Ric Flair, uh, Samson participated in what you could call the Royal Rumble, right? WrestleMania. He, he confronted 
a thousand Philistine soldiers. He picked up this jawbone of a donkey and he, he won. He mopped the floor with these Philistine troops. And then at the end of chapter 15, we get this kind of retirement statement. It says at the very end of the previous chapter, Samson judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So when you get a statement like that, that's not the first time we get a statement like that in scripture. It, it, it sort of signals the end of the story for that particular character. So we see this big crescendo moment in Samson's life. He strikes down a thousand Philistines and then it tells us that he judged Israel for 20 years. You think, okay, that's that's the, the story of Samson. It's over. He's hit his stride. He's had his glory days, and now he's fading into the sunset. Well, it's, it's a lot like Ric Flair. If you've followed Ric Flair's career, uh, he hit his stride in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, and, and about a, a decade after his, his prime, uh, Ric Flair was declared by wrestling pundits and historians to be the greatest professional wrestler of all in um, 2022, we see Ric Flair, he, he comes back to the ring. And there's actually footage of this. You can, you can look it up on YouTube later today. Ric Flair, 2022, wrestling at the age of 73. It's, it's kind of cringy to watch. Uh, it's, it's not very good. I don't know. He just Maybe he had some debts and he needed to make a little more money. So he comes back into um, the ring as a 73-year-old. And, and apparently he's just going to keep going. It, the, the spectacle of Ric Flair is going to continue. It's going to endure. And that's what's going on here with, with Samson. We, we thought the story was over at the end of chapter 15, but apparently we're not done. Apparently the spectacle that is Samson is going to, is going to endure. Uh, and so we see here at the beginning of, of chapter 16, uh, Samson's right back at it. Right back at his his. His lusty ways. You know, this is his compulsion. He can't stop. This is all he knows. And so in verse 1, we see Samson's com compulsion is displayed for us in, in that he goes down to Gaza, this Philistine city, and he sees a prostitute and he decides to, to partake of the prostitute's services. So again, Samson is in a Philistine city. Yet again, he's back in a Philistine place. And, and he's yet again dominated by his, his lusts his fleshly appetites. And, and we're not surprised. Here we are yet again, and it's, it's not a surprise. It's not particularly riveting. It's not surprising. We've come to expect this from Samson. It's like if you had a friend who was always traveling off to Vegas and doing whatever they do in Vegas. It's just, it's just what they do. This is who Samson is. So it begs the question, what's the point of telling us this? Why is the narrator telling us this? Is the point that we should read this and feel really good about ourselves? Because we can compare ourselves to Samson and, and very quickly think, you know, I'm, I'm not like that. I mean, sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like that. Samson is so flagrantly bad. He's, he's just a bad guy. And I'm better by comparison. You know, I mentioned that footage of Ric Flair. It's pretty easy, if I'm being honest, to, to look at anything from Ric Flair's life or Samson's life or any number of villainous bad people's lives and think, you know, I'm not like them. I'm doing pretty good. To run that comparison and to feel pretty righteous or pretty decent by comparison, we do that naturally. So is that the point? Is that why the narrator is showing us this? Well, the point 
is not that we would feel better by comparison. The point is actually that we would identify with this same unhealthy compulsion problem. That we would see ourselves in the character of Samson. That's the point. And we know that this is true because the Bible compels us to do this. So, for example, the Apostle Paul, he does this. He, he looks at villainous storylines and he says, me too. I can relate to, to the, the storyline of the villain because I'm villainous. I can, I can resonate and relate to the evil things I see people doing because I too do evil things. This is what Paul says in Romans 7. I know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in my flesh, Paul says. I do not do the good things I should be doing. The things I, I know I ought to do, the things that I might, might even want to do, I don't do those things. Oftentimes, I just don't do the good things. And conversely, the evil that perhaps I shouldn't do, that I don't even want to do, I keep, I keep doing that. I find in myself this compulsion to do things that are not healthy, that are not good, that are not loving. I see that in myself. Wretched man that I am. That's what Paul says. I get it. I can relate. Uh, this past week, I was watching uh, an interview from Deion Sanders, a re recent interview within the last couple of years, I think. And uh, in this interview, uh, Deion Sanders, uh, the guy interviewing him says, you know, you're, you're a role model. You know, for years, when you were a player, now you're a coach, you're a role model. And so they start talking about what is a role model. And Deion Sanders, Coach Prime says, okay, let's clarify what a role model is, what a role model needs to be. Well, a role model needs to be someone that you actually know. He stresses this. He says, you don't need a model who plays a role. You, you need a role model, and that means you need to actually know them. You need to actually have access to their real, everyday lives because, he says, you need to see their flaws. You need to see them at their worst. You need to see them when they sin. And you need to see whether or not they actually take responsibility for the, for the errors that they make and the failures that, that they participate in, the, the sins that they're committing. That's, that's what you need when you're looking for a role model. And, and if you really know someone, you know, if they're in your family or in your sphere of friends, uh, you know that though they may attempt to blame shift or compare themselves to other people to make themselves look better, you know they can't really get away with it. Because you know them. You have the dirt on them. You've seen them at their worst. It's funny, later in this interview, uh, Deion Sanders, he's talking about how, yes, I am a role model. And, and he begins to tell this, this little anecdote about his life where he says, you know, I've never done drugs. That may surprise some of you. I've never, I've never done drugs. I've never had even a sip of alcohol. You know, he's trying to say, I'm trying to be a role model to these kids. And you think he's sort of puffing himself up by saying this. He's acting kind of self-righteous about the fact that he's never done drugs. He's never even had a sip of alcohol. And then it's brilliant. He goes on to say, he goes, so I've never done drugs. I've, I've never been under the influence of alcohol. So you know that all those crazy bad things that I've done, that was all me. I can't blame the alcohol. I can't blame the, the substance. That was me. I'm not telling you I'm better. I'm telling you I'm the chief sinner. And I won't blame anybody but myself for that. I'm the one culpable for that. You know, I think the Apostle Paul and Coach Prime would get along great. I really do. 
I really do think that. Because uh, they both candidly admit their depravity. They're not trying to cover it up. They're not trying to hide it. They're saying, this, this is part of who, who I am. Wretched man that I am. You need to see that. We don't, we don't hide that. We don't conceal that. We're honest about our depravity. And subsequently, if you're honest about your depravity, then you are compelled to live by faith, not in yourself, but by someone who is actually better than you, someone who's come to fulfill all righteousness for you, someone who's come to atone for all of your failures and, and sin. You live by faith in Jesus. You know, you don't, you don't admit your, your depravity and sin in order to wallow in shame and guilt in this fact that you are depraved. You admit it like the way you admit you have a disease. If you have like diabetes or something, you'd go to the doctor and you would get it diagnosed. You would admit, I have this disease, not in order that it may have its way with me, not in order that the disease might just run rampant in my life. I admit that I have the disease so that I can call upon forces more powerful than myself and I can submit to those, those good forces who will help me diagnose and deal with my disease. And I can work with those forces to respond in a way that is healthy, that is diligent, that is disciplined. And that's what we see in Paul's life. He doesn't stop at this statement of wretched man that I am. He goes on to say, I live by faith in Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ. And in my relationship with Christ, he says in 1 Corinthians, I worked harder than anybody else. And that's not an arrogant statement. That's not a, a sinfully proud statement. He's saying, I do work hard in my union with Christ. It's not me. It's the grace of God in me that compels me to work hard. In 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, Paul describes your relationship with God like this. He says, God has registered you for a marathon, for, for a very challenging athletic event. That's what he says. So you need to run this race that you've been enrolled in with diligence and discipline and self-control. You, you should discipline your body, not live by compulsion. You get to enjoy the, the diligence and discipline that God wants to cultivate in your life. You get to live with self, giving yourself over to its lusts. It may be, Paul says, that all things are perhaps lawful, but not all things are always helpful. It may be that all things are lawful, but not all things will build you up. And you have to discern what is actually going to be constructive, what's going to be life-giving and joyfully healthy for me in my relationship with God and in my pursuit of loving other people. And you know, there really is joy to be discovered and relished in, in embracing the disciplines and the gifts of self-control that God wants to cultivate in your life. Um, there really is joy in the glorious nature of the objective that God has, has placed on your life. Uh, this past summer, a group of us from ECPC got to go over to, to Athens, Greece, and we actually stayed on Marathon Road. But right outside of where we lodged Marathon Road, the original marathon run by this guy named Pheidippides. I actually texted Ericos earlier this week to make sure I had the pronunciation right. Phidippides is how you say it. And um, if you have a, a baby boy coming along, just throw that out there. Maybe, maybe Phidippides. Um, he ran the original marathon. Why? Because he had a glorious objective. His, his team just won. They won the battle of marathon. And so he ran 26.2 miles 
because he was excited to, to share the news. So, so God says, that's a big motivating factor in your life of self-control and discipline. It's not just discipline for discipline's sake. You have a, a glorious heavenly father who has lavished his love on you, and, and you get to live in light of that. And, and discipline, self-control, diligence, that's part of being impacted by the gospel, this glorious reality that you get to be a part of now. I would also say there's, there's joy in the diligence and discipline itself, though. There's joy in the hard work and in the perseverance and in the endurance. There really is. So, so what happened with this event, the marathon? Well, now people run marathons all over the world. And, and if you perhaps know some of these runners, they'll tell you, it's something I enjoy. If you don't run, you're looking at them like they're crazy. You're looking at them like, why would you inflict such pain and suffering on your life? Why would you do that? Why would you run 26.2 miles if you didn't have to? No one's chasing you. You don't have to be running. But, but they would say, they would testify to the fact that it's actually enjoyable. There, there's actually joy in this. So that's what God wants for us. That's what he wants for Samson. But we see in Samson's story, Samson's not interested. He's not interested in that lifestyle. And uh, frankly, the narrator of Samson's story has had enough. He has had enough of Samson's antics. So the second point here is the narrator's curtness. The narrator is jarringly brief with this fairly epic-sounding story of, of Samson in, in Gaza. Uh, we're, we're used to the narrator telling us of Samson's exploits with flourish and, and panache. I mean, typically the narrator even grants Samson some airtime to come up with some of his poems and to offer some of his commentary on, on his heroic deeds. So in chapter 15, one of Samson's poems reads like this. After he slaughters a thousand Philistines, he says, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. Or in chapter 14, in response to uh, the, the Philistines in Timnah who solved his riddle, he, he poetically says, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. It's not exactly William Shakespeare. It's, it's like Ric Flair level poetry. But that's what the narrator is giving Samson in all the preceding chapters. He gives him a lot of airtime. But here the narrator is conspicuously curt. He's jarringly brief. Here's how the narrator describes this story. Verse 2 and verse 3, look back at those verses. The Gazites surround the whorehouse where Samson is with the prostitute, and they wait in ambush. And Samson gets up at midnight, and he goes to the city gates, and he rips them out of the ground and carries them to the hill near Hebron, 40 miles away. The end. It's really brief. It, it, by comparison with the previous episodes of Samson, this is very, very brief, offensively brief. I mean, Samson, if, if, if he heard the narrator say this, he would say, you left out so much. You, you left out all the good detail. I mean, don't you want to know how I snuck past the Gazite ambush? Don't you want to know that? Don't you want to put some detail into how I ripped out these, these gates you know, pulled them out of their foundations. Don't you want to, to talk about that with some flourish? And come on, I mean, you could do a whole documentary series on this 40-mile uphill journey from Gaza to Hebron. I mean, you could do this whole vignette on the history of Hebron. 
Abraham has history in Hebron. He has burial plots there. David was anointed camps and would say, I'm adding my name to the list of great deeds that have happened at Hebron. Don't you want to know why I, why I marched these gates 40 miles to Hebron? Come on, where's the detail? Where's the hype? Where's the excitement? And the narrator, in reply, would say to Samson, Nope, I'm over it. I'm over it, Samson. I'm completely over your narcissistic exploits. I'm over it. I'm not impressed. It would be like if you went to Lisa Brennan Jobs, biological daughter of Steve Jobs, and you said, aren't you so impressed, Lisa, with your dad, Steve? I mean, he, he changed the world. He invented this, this little rectangular device that we're all obsessed with, the iPhone. He invented that. It's so impressive. Lisa Brennan Jobs would say, yeah, you could say I have daddy issues. I know Steve in ways that don't necessarily flatter Steve. Steve hasn't really been a good dad to me. He hasn't been dad of the year by, by any means. Like from Steve is an apology. What I'd really like from Steve is, is some honest conversations about the, the trauma that I have experienced from him. I'm not super impressed with his exploits as a great technological iPhone guy. That's how the narrator feels about Samson right now. And frankly, God is growing kind of weary with Samson's antics as well. So the last point, God is silent. Just as the narrator is conspicuously curt, God is conspicuously silent. This is the first time when Samson's done something like this, you know, something clearly miraculous, and, and there is no mention made of the Spirit of God rushing upon Samson. That's what we're used to reading. God, God has always sort of chimed in in these stories about Samson and, and this, this detail about how the Spirit of God is, is very intricately involved. That's what we're used to reading, but that's not here. Now, let's be clear. God is involved, but he's not, cons he's not, he's not conspicuously involved, right? He's, he's actually silent, but he's involved. It'd be like if you forgot your roommate's birthday. Some of you, this would be a real big deal because your, your roommate is your spouse or your children. Um, but if you forgot your roommate's birthday, you know, I imagine they'd still be around the house, you know, helping with the dishes and the laundry and the vacuuming and the household chores. But, but maybe they wouldn't be talking to you as much. And you'd sort of wonder, what's the deal? Why are they giving me the silent treatment? Why, why are we not on speaking terms? I mean, they're still there, they're still involved, still helping with the work, but they're not talking. That's kind of how this feels. God's still very much involved, but he's not, he's not speaking up right now. He's not talking about how his spirit is, is an integral part of Samson's work. I think we could say God, in this scene of Samson's life, is, is brooding. Did you know this about God? He, he broods. You know, he, he thinks deep heavy thoughts. And he, and he might kind of have a furrowed brow, like a, a heavy sort of countenance. This is how God is described at many points in scripture. It says, the Lord has said he will dwell in thick darkness. Did you know this? God has, has often described himself as, as a God of thick darkness. It's kind of a brooding image. In Numbers 14, uh, God pictures himself as going to Moses and asking Moses, how long, Moses, will this people, the Israelites, reject me? How long will they be stubborn 
and unbelieving and not trust me, Moses? Sounds like God's really wrestling with this relationship that he's in with the Israelites. Because God is, he says, he's a jealous husband. And when the Israelites trust other false gods, pagan gods, instead of him, he feels that like adultery. He feels that as a, as a deep betrayal of, of a relational dynamic he wants with his people. So, he, so he's, he's heavy about that. It, 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 something he carries in a heavy, deep sort of way. We see this in the incarnation. When God takes on flesh, there are times when Jesus is reacting to, to people's requests or people's shenanigans, and he sighs. People come to him, and he, he reacts first by going, <sighs> and then he'll say, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It, that's a heaviness we're getting from Jesus. I think you see this in uh, the very famous story about Jesus attending the wedding in Cana. You know, they run out of wine. We're all familiar with this story, I think. And Jesus' mom comes to, to Jesus and she says, the, the people hosting the party have run out of wine. And do you remember what Jesus first says to his mom in response to, to her raising this issue? He says, woman, my hour has not yet come. Right? It doesn't seem like a, a particularly loving or respectful way to re, re, you know, reply to his mom right there. I don't think he sinned. The Bible says Jesus was sinless, so I don't think he was being sinfully disrespectful. But I think the way to, to sit in the tension of what is being revealed to us in that story is that Jesus is brooding. Think about it. Jesus is at a wedding. What, what do you think is on his mind? Well, what does Jesus come to do? He's come to redeem his wife. He's, he's come to pay the, the price that he must pay in order to ransom and redeem his wife. So he's at a wedding and he's thinking about his wedding. He's thinking about what will it cost me to have my wedding feast? And he knows it's going to cost him his life. He's going to have to pour out his blood. His body's going to have to break in order to have his wedding feast. And we see he doesn't just create wine. He uses these ceremonial washing jars to, to provide this wine. He's, he's quite explicitly, therefore, saying, I, I'm keenly aware of, of the lavish amount of, of work and sacrifice that I'm going to have to pour out in order to have my wedding day, to have my wedding feast with my wife. And see, that ultimately is the spectacle. The, the most enduring, all-eclipsing spectacle of Scripture is this story about how God took on flesh and was humiliated. He was absolutely humiliated, suffered, weak, scorned, mocked, shamed, in order to ransom the sinners that he loves. The Bible says in the prophet Isaiah that Jesus comes like a lamb, a, a lamb who is silent before its slaughterers. He doesn't open his mouth in the face of those who are crucifying him. He, he's led like a lamb to the slaughter silently. And I think that's the enduring spectacle. We see the silence of God here in Judges chapter 16. But ultimately God says, I want you to see the enduring spectacle of my silence. 
a, 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 an emblem or an image that will endure for all eternity. Because when you read the, the book of Revelation, this image is still there. In fact, it's the prominent image. It's the lamb who was silent before his slaughterers. The lamb who was slain. And that's the epicenter. That's the, fix, the fixation or focal point of our worship forever. It's the lamb. The silent lamb who was slain. We're going to come to this table here in a minute. And we need, to, we need to embrace it as the enduring spectacle of, of God's grace and God's profound redeeming silence. You need to let the, the, the silence of God, the, the redeeming, atoning silence, not the chastising, angry silence of God, not like a silent treatment, but God saying, I need you to see and, and I don't need you to just know about it and then move on. I need you to regularly remember this. Regularly enrich your life and be nourished by this profound, mysterious, staggering fact that God took on flesh and he poured out his life for you. He was led like a lamb who was silent before the men slaughtering the lamb. God you need to see eclipses your relapsing into sin and all the shame you feel because of that. Your, your persistent, humiliating sin, which we see on display here in the story of Samson. The enduring spectacle of your flaws, your failures, your guilt, your shame. And God says, let my silence seep into that space. Let, let my salvation work eclipse your shame. That's what I want for you. The spectacle of your sin, as it continues, because it will, let the absolute, eternal, enduring spectacle of this act of redemption, let that prevail on your life. Let, let that feel the space of your guilt and your shame. Um, I think that Samson is with Jesus right now. I can't prove that to you, but I, I really think that. And we can talk afterward why I think that, but suffice it to say, I think Samson has been redeemed by Jesus because he's a big sinner and Jesus saves people who sin big time. And I think Jesus and Samson have actually talked about this Gaza episode from Samson's life because God wants a real rigorous relationship. And I think they've talked about how Samson's actions at this point in the story and at many other points, his actions are narcissistic. They are selfish. Samson uh, would look back from, from heaven, he would look back at this Gaza episode. Uh, he would look at it and he would say, that was a story of guilt for me, a story of shame. And then I think Jesus would say, yeah, your contribution was a very shameful, guilt-oriented contribution. That's true. We're not going to deny that. But you're not allowed to wallow there. You're not allowed to let what, what you've done the bad things, the wretched things you've done. You're not allowed to let that dominate and define you. You don't wallow in the bad things you've done. You marinate in the mercy of God. You know, there's another story in scripture about Gaza. I, I didn't know this until this week. I just was kind of researching and, and thinking about what happens around this town, Gaza. Acts chapter 8 there is a redemption story that is told about Gaza. In Acts chapter 8, an angel of the Lord sends the deacon Philip to go down to the road of Gaza, to this desert place where he encounters this Ethiopian eunuch reading the Bible. 
And he's, he's not just reading any old passage in the Bible. He's reading the passage that says, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like a lamb who before its shearers is silent, so the Messiah opened not his mouth as he was slain, as he laid down his life for the sinners that God wants to redeem. I think Jesus and Samson have talked about that story. And Jesus says, you need to let that, that act of my mercy eclipse your guilt. Eclipse all of these very unflattering stories that the Bible has, has told us about you. That's not your identity. Your identity is in the life that was lived for you. The atoning sacrifice that was poured out on your behalf. Jesus says, this is what I want for all of you. And so before you partake of this table, you have to examine yourself. You have to, first of all, ask yourself, do I want to admit that I have this wretchedness living inside of me? I need to admit that, that I'm like Samson. I'm very self-absorbed. I repeat my sins over and over again. I relapse all the time. I'm, I'm back into this thing I shouldn't be doing and the thing I should be doing. I don't necessarily do that thing. Wretched person that I am. You need to grapple with whether or not you actually have a genuine sense of your depravity. Because this meal is not for decent, good people who, who don't have any real depravity issues. It, it wouldn't be this extreme. It wouldn't be this invasive if you were just a basically decent person. But more than that, you need to embrace the fact that Jesus says the most defining, most dominating reality of your life is not your failure. It's the life of Jesus and the fulfilling of all righteousness that he gives to you. It's the sacrifice of Christ, atoning for all of your guilt and all of your shame. It's not God's angry, chastising silence that prevails in our life. It's his atoning, redeeming silence. The, the silence that we see in this very passive lamb who was led to be slaughtered so that sinners could be saved. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for showing us from so many different angles and, and frankly in a host of different genres uh, throughout many thousands of years, this key fundamental story, the story of the gospel. Thank you for clarifying passages like the gospel of Luke chapter 24 where Jesus leads a Bible study, whether it's Judges or Leviticus or one of the prophets, and he says, it's all pointing to me. It's all designed sovereignly and infinitely to, to draw us sinners into this place of feasting on the body and drinking the blood of the Savior, Jesus. Because we're not saved by our work. We're not saved by our ability to compare ourselves with others and prove ourselves better. It's not, it's not about us being able to justify ourselves. You very clearly, very redundantly tell us that it's about us clinging to Jesus. And so in a very graphic and scandalous kind of way, we're about to come and partake of this, this supper. We're going to partake of the body that was broken, of the only perfect man who ever lived, the blood that was poured out, because we believe this is the only place where we have salvation, and this is the system for, for our lives, that we would follow a Savior like this, that our lives would be more and more conformed to, to this style, to this this way of life, the suffering servant king. We pray that you would cause this to nurture us, get inside of us, and define the way we live. And we pray this in his name. Amen.